0: You're listening to
1: 101.9 Hi FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the program on this Monday morning. Hope you're having a fantastic start to your week, and we've got a great show lined up for you later on. We're going to be heading over to Parliament with Dear South Africa, but just after the break, I'm very excited. Uh, a very, very important interview that we've got for you. We're going to be talking to Cormac Smith, who is a British diplomat who was loaned to the Ukrainian Ministry of Foreign Affairs between 2016 and 2018, no better man to be able to give us a sense about what is going on with the Ukrainian-Russian situation, which, of course, is captivating the world. Cormac, thank you so much for joining us on
0: 101.9. Chai Fem, thank you so much for your time. Benji, it's a pleasure. Sorry if I can just, so we don't get you and me into trouble. I'm a former British diplomat. Um Of course, I wouldn't be able to do this interview, certainly without any um, significant strictures, because I would have to, quite rightly, um, keep in line with British government policy if I was a serving diplomat. I'm a former diplomat, and the reason I do this, I think you're, I gave up counting after 50 interviews in the last month or so, um, but the reason I do this is because Ukraine is a country which is More than close to my heart. It's a country I fell in love with and the people. And, you know, part of this is an information war. So if I can help in any small way to honestly explain what's going on and also to confront Russian lies, because that's a big, big part of this war is the toxic lies that Russia propagates. Um, then that's what I want to do. And so thank you, Benji, for, um, you know, giving me the opportunity. And hopefully in return, I, I can help explain a few things to you and your listeners.
1: Thanks for that correction, Cormac. And thank you again. Yes, we certainly appreciate having insights from someone such as yourself. Maybe we can start, though, with how it is that you got seconded to the ministry in the first place. This sounds like it was a fairly unusual move by the British government at the time. What caused it and why did you decide to take on this
0: particular role? Good question. Look, I spent the last, basically my career for 30 years has been, I've been a professional communicator. Some people call it public relations. I just call it professional communications. And for the last 20 years, I've worked for government in the UK, both, both local and central. And I've only recently, I left Her Majesty's government at the end of 2018. I now work as a freelancer. But in 2016, I had been asked to go on secondment to Britain's Cabinet Office as, a, as Deputy Director of Communications to undertake a, a discrete number of tasks. And after about three months, my boss asked me if I would consider doing some, as he put it, foreign work. To which my initial thing was no, because I love my, my home and my family and everything is in London. But when I discussed this with my partner... We thought, look, this is a this is a fantastic opportunity, and, and, and so I said I would consider it. And I also said that if it was possible, I wanted to go to Eastern Europe because I have developed a huge interest in Eastern Europe since about twenty thirteen. I've been invited out to various former former communist countries to to lecture and speak and work with people on government communications as as part of the support that the British government gives to other countries to help them with their democratization process. So. Um, In the meantime, there was a job as a senior special advisor to the Ukrainian foreign minister that had actually come about in 2015 when the then British foreign secretary Philip Hammond, who I subsequently learned had a particularly good relationship with Pavlo Klimkin. They were good friends. And Philip had made a promise to Pavlo that he would send him out um, one of their, excuse me, it wasn't my um, words, but one of their top people to um, help him with his government communication. And a year later, that turned out to be this particular Irishman who I hope your listeners um, notice by my accent. Um, I'm not British, I'm Irish, but I've lived in this great country, this great country being the United Kingdom for 34 years and had a, you know, had a, had a great life here. I've represented United Kingdom at World Cup level at international sport, and I've now represented them as a senior diplomat abroad. So I hope that's not that's how it that's how it came about.
1: Absolutely fascinating and and very very interesting. I want to get on to some of the things that have been confusing if, when you when you talk about the information element uh, about why Putin is doing this and and I'd like your opinion on one of them. A big one is this idea that NATO um, has been expanding over the last few years. This is been a provocation to Russia. Ukraine was about to join NATO. If you listen to the Russian press, what's your view on that
0: sort of pretext for the Russian invasion? you use the right word it's a pretext it's a um, it's a straw man and it is a it is a complete pretext and it was interesting about 3 or 4 weeks ago the british defence secretary ben wallace set this out in a very very good op-ed in the times in london nato is a defensive alliance it is a security alliance nato has never and will never invade anybody, it's certainly not going to invade um, Russia. Um, the expansion of NATO has been democratic countries inviting NATO in and asking, begging to join NATO to for their own security, because they have felt threatened. And I first learned of this when I first traveled to the Baltic states. And the first Baltic state I worked in was Lithuania, and the second one was Latvia. And when I started speaking to both ordinary people and some senior, very senior government people and military people in these areas. This was from 2015. I learned that they were very, very nervous after the Maidan Revolution in um, Ukraine in 2014. That indeed they would be next. So you know, this is a complete pretext. There was never any promises given after the breakup of the Soviet Union that NATO would not um, expand, and nor should there have, nor should there have been. That's another toxic Russian lie which is put out there you know it's very very simple if ukraine had been a member of nato they would not be getting invaded at the moment and their civilians would not increasingly be being murdered in this um genocidal fashion uh, but while we're on the st- just one more thing if i can then while we're talking about you know the russians accuse the West of breaking promises. Let's talk about one very big promise. In 1994, there was an agreement called the Budapest Memorandum. And the Budapest Memorandum was signed up to initially by the United Kingdom, by the United States, and by Russia, guaranteeing for all time the territorial integrity of Ukraine in return for Ukraine giving up the world's third largest nuclear arsenal. Now, many people in Ukraine would say, and I would agree with them, that if Ukraine still held those nukes, um, Russia would not have illegally annexed Crimea in 2014. Russia would not have invaded the Donbass in 2014 and certainly would not be carrying out this genocidal invasion today. Russia in 2014 bat on and tore up that historic agreement so russia is in absolutely no position to talk about the west breaking promises even if that promise had been made and i can tell you categorically it hasn't there's nothing in writing it may well have been discussed by um american diplomats in the in the course of negotiations that is normal there was nothing came out in the end in terms of a treaty or a or a international agreement that was signed into international law. Another toxic lie from the country and the Kremlin that lies on an industrial basis.
1: Now, you mentioned the nukes, uh, and obviously the Ukrainians are vast, vastly outnumbered in this in this fight. Uh, when you first got to Ukraine, what was your impression of the capabilities of, of the Ukrainians, and perhaps a sense
0: about how they might be organizing to, to fight back? The sense, I mean, I started learning a lot about the military history and how in 2014, when Russia first invaded there, because there had been four or five years of the corrupt dictator Yanukovych, who was overthrown in 2014, their army was run down. It was about six and a half thousand strong. It was demoralized. It had poor leadership. The Russians in the um, the Donbass were initially fought to a standstill by volunteer battalions. So what I learned very, very quick about the Ukrainians was the incredible resilience and toughness of the Ukrainian people. I have been telling people for six years, in particular, I've been telling people in interviews for the last six weeks that, you know, the Ukrainians will, you know, they will fight and Putin will never have Ukraine. My fear, and it's only been multiplied at the moment, is how many Ukrainians, most of them innocent civilians may have to die to keep their country, because we know that this psychopathic criminal thug, which is exactly what he is in the Kremlin, has no compunction with murdering tens of thousands of innocent people. He has form on this. He's done it in Aleppo, and he's done it in Grozny, and he's done it elsewhere. And we are now seeing he cannot, despite having overwhelming firepower, he cannot beat the Ukrainians in a fair fight, because one, they are one, tough people, but two, they're not conscripts, They are men, men. They are men and women fighting on their, fighting for their motherland, for their homes, for their wives, for their children. Let me give you one figure to think about. In the entire, um, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in 79. They stayed there for nine years and two months. In that nine years and two months, they lost 15,000 men. That was an average of about five a day. That was pretty horrendous. In the first five days of this war, they have lost 5,000. That's yep. the that's the Ukrainian military of uh, Ministry of Defense figures, which is pretty well pretty well agreed with by the by by the Brits and the Americans and other people. And this is why you know, as every bully does, when a bully bully never likes a fair fight, and he thought that he would you know he expected that the those that spoke the Russian speakers would would welcome him in with open arms. He expected the Ukrainian military would throw their arms down and surrender. He has found out that he cannot beat the Ukrainians in a fair fight. So therefore, he is increasingly um, resorting to barbaric and genocidal methods, um, which we're unfortunately seeing on our screens. We're talking to Cormac Smith today. Uh, He is a former
1: uh, British diplomat that was seconded to the Ukrainian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is 101.9 High fm this is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. 101.9. Hi, I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review talking today to Cormac Smith, former British diplomat, uh, seconded to the Ukrainian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Cormac, uh, I want to just alert the listeners to the fact that normally I would not tell them if we're doing a pre-record. It's part of the theater of the mind when you're doing radio. But because this is such a fluid situation, by the time that this airs, uh, I don't know what the situation will be so i'm just telling people that if if something sounds a little bit outdated uh, it's only because the situation is moving too quickly but what i wanted to ask you was about the west's reaction right we have a, a sense in the run-up to this that the west wasn't that interested in ukraine uh, wasn't going to come to its defense what is your sense about mobilization in the west and indeed the rest of the world when it's come to pushing back russia Uh, on this topic? And what might the Russian reaction be, especially with the nuclear question hanging over the whole thing?
0: Well, look, despite being Irish, I live in Britain. And, you know, I very much see this as, you know, my government and my country. And I'm, you know, I've worked for the Brits have been right at the forefront of, um, of providing aid and most recently, lethal aid and and you know anti-tank defensive weapons to the Ukrainians in literally hundreds of tons, as have the Americans, as have the Canadians. But I think you know the um, that group and the Brits in particular, we have been responsible for marshalling increasingly other European countries to a point where we have 27 countries are now committed to providing. Um, um armaments, the Ukrainians, they still need more. I was saying up to very recently, my line was, look, we need to sanction Russia back to the Stone Age. We need to arm the Ukrainians to the teeth. They're not a member of NATO. We're not going to put boots on the ground. The Ukrainians know this. And their defence minister, um, Oleksiy Reznikov, said not very long ago, um, just give us the weapons we need. We'll do our own fighting. I don't think anybody could have envisaged we would get to where we are today. And I'm going to say something that's not for a soundbite. It's what, after my short 59 years on this planet and having grown up and been educated through the Cold War and studied it in my politics degree. This is a 1939 moment for the world. There's two things. There has not, not just in, and not just in Europe, there has not been a point of, there has not been a point of absolute peril for world security since the the outbreak of the Second World War. The only thing was Hitler did not have six and a half thousand nuclear warheads which clearly Putin has made barely veiled threats to use and 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 whether that's whether he will do that or not is another question completely so you know what do I think we do I I really think that game has moved on it's not enough to say "Mm, Ukraine's not a member of NATO there's now debates I'm going on a debate later on tonight here you know I believe we must have a no-fly zone the Ukrainians are outnumbered 10 to 1 in air power. They're outnumbered 10 to 1 in tanks, thanks to the thanks to the armaments that ourselves and the Americans in particular have been giving them for the last couple of months. They have been able to knock out over 200 Russian battle tanks in the last five days, you know, and they've been able to put up a fight. But what we're seeing now is, you know, we have talk of this 40 mile long column of um, of military vehicles heading towards Kiev at the moment from the north. We don't know whether they're going to surround Kiev and lay siege. We don't know whether they're going to fight their way into it. But what we are clearly seeing, which our listeners will, I'm sure, will have seen is increasingly, you know, barbaric and indiscriminate um, shelling and, um, um, and, and rocket attacks on civilian areas and the civilian death toll going up and up, as I've already said, He's got form on this he's done it in aleppo and grozny he has no compunction with murdering tens of thousands of innocent people um, i personally did not think that he would do this against fellow slavs he wants to you know he wants to take over you know he will never have ukraine now this is the beginning this has got to be the end this has got to be the beginning of the end for vladimir putin the only question is how quickly we realize this is not this is there's no half measures here anymore. We have to go all in. And the longer we delay, the more we're all going to suffer. And that's, you know, this is my, you know, this is my personal view. And I listen to what everybody else says. This is our 1939 moment. This is a massive threat to world security and to democracy and a a way of life that we have, you know, that we have come to treasure and to fight for.
1: Talking about the 1939 moment, uh, Cormac, uh, it, the Russian framing of this has been very interesting, talking about demilitarization, denazification. It's an interesting way that they're, that they're even talking about this intent.
0: I coined a phrase when I was working with Pavlov Klimkin, because I'm a communicator and I always go for soundbites. And I then explained, because it's attention grabbers, I said, Russia lies on an industrial scale. And so they do, and they use lies and deceit and false narratives as part of their hybrid war strategy that they basically unleashed on the world in 2014 with the illegal annexation of Crimea. We need to really wake up and understand how hybrid war works. Yes, it's conventional violence, as we are unfortunately seeing in Ukraine today. But below that in the pyramid, it is it is disinformation. It is, you know, lies spewed out by the, you know, vomitoriums like uh, Orti and Sputnik and the the thousands of um and the thousands of toxic little keyboard jockeys working out of troll farms in St. Petersburg and Moscow. They also carry out assassinations like they carried out an attempted assassination on British soil in Salisbury back in 2018. They interfere with election, they carry out cyber attacks, they do everything to disrupt and to sow fear and to sow division among society, you know, among society so the denazification bit 2019 2019 the last election the far right and there is a far right element in Ukraine there's a far right element to my knowledge in every european country and i'm sure there is in south africa certainly there is in the uk and in ireland the entire far right grouped together in a coalition in 2019 to fight the election to you know to multiply their force they achieved two 0.15% of the popular vote. On the other hand, Volodymyr Zelensky, a Jew of Russian origin whose first language was Russian, who had lost relatives in the um, um, in the Holocaust, achieved 73% of the popular vote. And for a time, Ukraine was the only country outside the state of Israel that had both a Jewish president and a Jewish prime minister, who was Vladimir Groysman. Further than that, I'll say one more thing. In um, 2017 and 2018, there was two different um, two different pieces of research carried out. You know, I can get them over to you, you can look for them. There, there was, and what they showed was, the one in 2018 was a piece of pure research, you know, very highly um, respected. And they showed that of all the former communists and Eastern European countries, Ukraine was the least anti-Semitic, and the most welcoming to Jewish tradition. So, you know, I think that's that's the lie of denazification and the lie of demilitarization is basically that, you know, Ukraine is a threat to Russia and it's about NATO expansion and, and everything else. You know, the Ukrainians, 44 million, peaceful. They just want to live in peace. They don't want to threaten anyone. They have lots of, they're a very young state, I guess like South Africa in some ways, and they're a very young state. They're a very old nation, but they're a very young state. And they've lots of issues to sort out around corruption and, and, and reforms and everything else. And they're making real progress. I've seen it when I was there and I've seen it since. But they're making this progress despite having seven point, well, more now but up to recently they had 7.2% of their land occupied by Russia and they had a, a, a a hybrid war being prosecuted on them. But I've been telling people for years, look, this hybrid war is not only being prosecuted against Ukraine. It's been prosecuted against the Western world and nobody would seem to listen.
1: Cool, Mick, that is actually what it was going to be my next question, right? If we zoom out of this a little bit, as you say, this is not just a European problem, but but a world problem. What do you think the long-term implications are for this invasion? Both in attitudes to the West, suddenly we're seeing Germany talking about militarization, NATO, you know, issuing articles, all sorts of things. So there's clear mobilization just right at the moment in the West. In a protracted war, between Russia and, and and Ukraine, what is the effect
0: of it? Especially if the outcome is is negative on the Ukrainian side. Well, undoubtedly the the outcome is going to be negative in the short term against Ukraine. Whether they can whether they can hold out and keep the and you know keep Kiev and whether um, Zelensky can stay in power. The next few the next few days are gonna are going to tell. But you know, even if they manage to. Even if they managed to take Kyiv and they managed to take the other big and they managed to take the other big cities, what has been absolutely proven now is there is there is no welcome in the country for them. Um, 37% in a recent poll before this kicked off um, of Ukrainian people outside their standing army and their reserves and their National Guard have said they would take up arms and fight. I told people this. People said, ah, oh, yeah, really? I said, yes, I've lived among these people for two years. You asked me this question already. They have a, they have a just a sheer toughness that I haven't seen anywhere else. And I've been around a few blocks in my 60 years. Lovely people, the most w- welcoming, generous, lovely people. I've made friends for life, but there's something about them. They're tough. They they told the world they'd do this. I and a few other p- people that know them told the world they'd do this. There was one day, a couple of days ago, in Kiev, there was eighteen thousand Kalashnikovs handed out to ordinary citizens by the um, city mayor Klitschko. You know, there's whole there's, there's city squares all over the country where there's women and children sitting down in in you know in a in a basically in a in a in a in a in a factory mass production. Sort of way making Molotov cocktails. Sorry, I shouldn't say Molotov cocktails. You know what a Molotov cocktail is? In Ireland, we call them a the petrol bomb um, because we had our own troubles in the north. But uh, actually, Molotov, my friends reminded me recently, was a hated Russian war criminal. What they're calling these, interestingly enough, now is um, Bandera's Bandera's smoothies after <laughs> Stepan Bandera, who was the um, who was the, the, the legendary um leader of the um of the of of the Ukrainian um of the Ukrainian separatist army that fought against both the Nazis and the Bolsheviks um up to during and after the Second World War. So I mean these people, but the as I say, the problem is so this is a huge country, you know, and we're hearing we're hearing stories already of of um of of Russians um, putting their arms down and deserting. We're hearing stories of um, prisoners being taken and having no idea where they were or what they were sent to do and not knowing that they were sent to kill their to kill their brother Slavs. Um, we have evidence that their, that their supply lines have been breaking down, that there's, there's so many setbacks. So, yes, with this overwhelming force and the way, the indiscriminate way this butcher is willing to use it. Ukraine may, Ukraine may fall in the short term. It will never be held. The Ukrainian people are not going to come to a point where they're going to say, Oh, we've had enough. You're hurting us too much. We give up and we'll accept you. Ukrainian people will never do that. They have had genocides before in the hol- the Holodomor in the in the 20s, in the 1930s and 32, 33, where, you know, there are different estimates because it's hard, but anywhere between seven and ten million. Ukrainians were murdered by Stalin because he simply wanted to put the he wanted to put his boot on the on the and suppress Ukraine's desire for a national identity. They lost more people in the Second World War than any other nation. They are they are inured, they are hardened by a very abusive history over the last hundred years, and the result is that it's lovely people, but my God, they're tough.
1: Komek, I I think I'm ever referred to the Ukraine as the correct um cor- correctly Uh, pronounced as just Ukraine, Uh, but us here in South Africa, we're probably about as far away from Ukraine as one could, could get. People often ask, is there anything we can do? Is there something that can be done uh, from our small perch here in africa
0: my philosophy and i mean i think it's obvious what i'm you know my philosophy is this is a war on all this is a war on this is a war on decent people everywhere who who value freedom and democracy and a decent way of living and you know i, I think you know if you'll if you know you'll excuse me on your program for saying and i said it on a south african radio program earlier today i said you know the good people of south africa above many many others you know you overcame in in very recent decades what I believe to be the existential evil of apartheid where you know the, the the vast majority of the people of South Africa were second-class citizens and had very very few rights. this is a this is a fundamental issue of freedom and democracy and a way of life that since 1945, the world has increasingly aspired to and with certainly with Nelson Mandela this was the aspiration i believe of people like that i i find it very very difficult to understand where south africa is now that recently i think it was your foreign minister made a made a view, made a statement that russia should withdraw from ukraine and he was very quickly slapped down by your president who said no that's not government policy so the very best that that South Africa as a country seems to be doing is sitting on the fence. I would say to the good people of South Africa, black, white, coloured, whatever race or background or ethnicity or gender or whatever you are, right? The vast majority of the good people of South Africa, you have a choice. You can sit on the fence or you can be on the right side of history. And what can you do? If you have a voice, use it. Everyone who goes to the pub or the restaurant or a cafe has a voice. You know, I'm a professional communicator and I decided last December, because I gave my friends in Ukraine a promise that I would do what I could, and I spent six or seven weeks pushing and asking everybody I knew for, and I've finally, now I'm, you know, I'm on a bit of a circuit and I'm I'm, I'm privileged to have platforms like yours where I can speak to a lot of people from my heart, but honestly, as I can, you know, there are the, the the National Bank of Ukraine has set up a special account where anybody can donate. You can donate from a rand to a hundred rand to whatever it is, whatever it is you feel you can give. If you can do nothing else, you can do that, right? And that money will be every single Every single—I was going to say every single penny. I suppose I should say every single rand, as I'm speaking in South Africa. You know, is guaranteed to going to it'll go to humanitarian aid. It'll go to, it'll go to buying bullets. It'll go to buying armaments. It'll go to buying whatever the Ukrainians need in their existential fight for um, freedom. I'm apart from this. I'm currently talking to a variety of people who are now contacting me and saying, Cormac, what can we do to help? I'm talking about some quite powerful and influential and well-placed people it's that said I'm willing to use my voice, my money, my my company, whatever. So I'm increasingly getting involved and seeing how I can work with various people to just to look at, you know, there's obviously on the extreme end, there's the, that um, they've set up a, they've set up a foreign legion effectively, and they're inviting foreigners to go to who want to. And I heard a report this morning that 50 ex-British paratroopers are heading off to Kiev to fight. Now, you know, that's not for everyone. And But if if I were a younger man, if I were half my age, even though I don't have, well, I have a little bit of a military background, I guess, in in, in reserves when I was in my late teens, I've done the basic weapons training. If I was a younger man, you know, I might consider doing that. But I'd consider, actually, I'm thick enough to consider doing it now, but I'm a 50 59-year-old overweight Irishman. I'd get killed on day one. You know, I can contribute a lot more by using my voice. Because as I said, this is an information war. We all have a voice, big or small, and we can all amplify that voice if we put a mind to it. We can reach into our pocket and we can give whatever we can. And we can look for other ways. One One of my tasks at the moment, and the many people, some that you know actually, the many people, because some of these people, when I ask them for introductions, they... I ended up being introduced to your good self. Some of the you know, people like this want to want to help. Good people want to help recognize that this is existential. One of my tasks at the moment is working with various people and the Ukraines to figure out, right, it's no good doing something that's already been done. What can we do to maximize the goodwill and the and 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 and, and the capability and capacity that we have? But yeah, I mean, use your voice. Send money. Um, you know, think about what you can. Think about what you can do. Keep in close touch. Speak to the Ukrainian community in your areas. Any Ukrainian friends? But, yeah, you know, I'm passionate sure. about this. Of course, I am. This is uh, more absolutely honest.
1: taking us to uh, the end of the show or uh, well, end of the segment. Uh, today thank you so much for your time we,
0: we really appreciate you coming on and giving us your perspective it's been a pleasure it's been a real pleasure and thank you for the opportunity to speak to your listeners and um you know i, I mean an absolute privilege i didn't think two or three weeks ago that i'd be doing um that i'd be doing radio programs in south africa
1: yes yeah, certainly and if you ever come around uh you uh are more than welcome and we will we will, we will gladly have you on again that's Cormac mac smith he's a former uh, british diplomat who was stationed uh, with the Ukrainian Foreign Ministry talking to us uh, about the situation. Just a reminder that this was a pre-record and uh, we did it, uh, we pre-recorded it last week, so if the situation on the ground has changed, that is why.